Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Our team is refreshed, I think, after taking a three-day holiday and uh, getting back to work uh, this morning. We're excited about being able to talk about the runoff election, all the results of uh, the election that we've watched continue to get counted uh, in races across the country. Um, So why don't we get right to the panel and uh, talk about uh, uh, all of the political news that uh, uh, we're going to get into uh, today. It's Monday, which means that Patricia Murphy, the political reporter and columnist, she writes the Political Insider column for the AJC uh, that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper. She also oversees the jolt. Patricia, I see that you are sitting in your car. A not unusual place lately for AJC reporters who do this show to be. Where are you heading? Are you heading to a campaign event or just dropping kids off at school? Uh, it could be either, but I actually am outside the state capitol because this morning there will be a leadership election for um, uh, Republicans to select the new speaker. That speaker would be installed in January, but this is when they make their decision. And there are multiple other contested leadership elections um, as well. And this will really determine um, the direction of the state house as well as really the state capitol because it's been a, a real kind of um, sometimes a counterpoint to the state senate. So um, that's where that's where I am. Starts at ten, so I'll hang up here and then run on in. Well, thank you very much for being with us. In fact, the uh, decision on who Republicans will elect to be speaker is something we're going to talk about later in the show, because it could have a profound impact on the direction that the state house takes in the next session and sessions subsequent uh, to that. So thank you for being with us. Uh, We're also joined by uh, Maya King, politics reporter for The New York Times, stationed here in Georgia, covering the South, Southeast for the New York Times. Maya, I've said it before, I'll say it again, with the runoff election still looming ahead of us, you just probably couldn't have had a better assignment as a politics (laughs) reporter than to come to the South to cover what's happening here. Could not have had a busier assignment either, I will say. (laughs) Well, we're very happy you're with us. Thank you so much. We're glad to welcome back to the show after an absence of some time, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat based out of uh, Decatur. Mary Margaret, first of all, you did have an opponent in your election this time around. Uh, but congratulations on a big victory in that race You've got another at least two years, and I know listeners are glad that you're back on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a beautiful morning here on Tybee Island. I'm taking some time off, so I'm very glad to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Leo Smith is back with us. He's been a Republican consultant for years in Georgia and uh, now a CEO of Engage Futures, a government relations firm. 
But Leo is also one of the leaders of an effort at the Carter Center uh, to uh, promote democratic, um, honest, accurate elections that, um, that political leaders acknowledge are accurate and honest elections. So, Leo, thank you for being back with us today. It's a pleasure. There's work still to do, but we're good. happy to see winners who um, were supporting the republic and also losers who conceded in a magnanimous way. And so just wonderful to see that. Um, it is important to point out very quickly, Leo, that um, w- with the exception of very few cases, minor incidents uh, in terms of technical problems, uh, the midterm election, despite people's concerns about what could happen, went off very, very smoothly across the state. It did, and I hope that uh, Georgians would do it again and make sure we have peaceful, engaging, robust elections for this runoff. All right, um, Patricia, let's start with what the dynamic of the U.S. Senate runoff race here between uh, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock is. Now that we know that uh, the control of the Senate is going to remain in the, in, in the hands of Democrats. Um, we know that Mark Kelly did, in fact, win his race in Arizona. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto won in Nevada. We were waiting, all of us, for the outcome of that race. So the Senate right now will stay in the hands of Democrats because, of course, the vice president uh, has the ability to vote in the case of ties. So that said... How, Patricia, and you'll start us off, and I want to hear everybody on this, what does that do to the dynamic of the Walker-Warnock runoff if control of the Senate is no longer at stake? Well, it does a couple of things. First of all, it just drains a little bit of the intensity out of that election and out of the next four weeks. We're not, we will still see uh, probably more than $100 million of ads come in, but it's not going to be $400 million of ads. It won't be every potential Republican committee chairman coming down to stump with Herschel Walker. It might be a couple. Um, I think it's still hugely important, but it, it just is not going to be a repeat of 2021 where everything came, everything in Washington came down to those Senate seats. Um, so it, it just changes the nature of it slightly. I think it also probably takes a little bit of momentum away from Herschel Walker um, because so much of our polling shows that uh, his individual attributes, um, voters, those swing voters, especially those crossover voters who he needs to support him, um, uh, are not excited about him being in the Senate, but they would have gotten behind him if it had been all down to this Senate seat about control of the U.S. Senate. They would look past his shortcomings on his readiness for the job or their perceived um, their perceptions about his character and his character flaws and his past allegations. Um, There were a good number of Republicans ready to vote for Herschel Walker anyway and make it a point to go out the week after Thanksgiving to get this done. I think that that um, because it's not all down to this seat, I think that takes some of that momentum away from him. Yeah, uh, Maya, so much of the Walker campaign was built around uh, the claims that he was marching lockstep with President Biden, that a vote for Raphael Warnock is a vote for the Biden agenda, the socialist, uh, big spending uh, Biden agenda. And a lot of the steam is taken out of that argument uh, at this moment. Yes. 
Yeah, I would say so. And I think uh, to Patricia's point, you know, the Walker campaign, about 30 percent of the work they will have to do at this stage is just changing minds, particularly (laughs) among swing voters and independents. And that's a much harder sell to make when it's not coming down to the one seat. And when the president, who they consistently vilified and Joe Biden on the campaign trail, actually turned out to have a much better election night than any of us predicted, not saying that changes the minds of um, the, the deep red, you know, diehard Republicans who are going to vote for Walker anyway. But for those on the margins and those in the middle, it might be it might it's another reason to either stay home or vote against him. Um, I was with Warnock yesterday at an event in which he said, you know, his uh, message will not change largely as it relates to Walker. I think Democrats plan to make the next three weeks all about Walker's character. But what we've also noticed is that Warnock is making a lot more sort of direct to camera, direct appeals to those voters in the middle, those independents, moderates, even conservatives in the Atlanta suburbs who might have written in um, Mickey Mouse for the, <laughs> the Senate or left it completely blank. He's now asking them to vote for him. Uh, Mary Margaret, we know that uh, Raphael Warnock, until late in the campaign when he felt he really had to step up his personal uh, attacks on, on Herschel Walker, as opposed to the ads that did it on his behalf. We know that he chose uh, for much of the campaign to run as a uh, as somewhat someone who knew how to work across the aisle to accomplish positive things for the people of Georgia. He, he ran in many ways, I've said a few times, as the pastor that he is. Um, and, and it feels at this moment, uh, especially given how poorly election deniers and Trump allies across the country did in this election, that that may in fact be not a bad way to run a race. Senator Warnock is a unique candidate. I mean, as a pastor of perhaps the most famous church in the United States, certainly in the history of uh, Georgia, black and civil rights in Georgia, uh, he's a unique candidate and his skills are very unique. Those of us that are native Georgians think about the quality of representation by both Sam Nunn and Johnny Isaacson, uh, two gentlemen that were respected as individuals, as respected as uh, servant leaders, respected in the U.S. Senate. And the attitude, the approach, the focus of the next several weeks will be on these two men, uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And the two men represent very, very distinct uh, representations of respect and service that I would like as a native Georgian to continue. Raphael Warnock, I think, is a perfect candidate for this time of divisiveness and ugliness in politics. And he brings some healing and he certainly brings some bipartisan uh, work. And Herschel Walker uh, represents many of the bad things in politics, the celebrity uh, appeal, the non-substance appeal, the uh, no real history of service um, in the political world or the policy world. So it's a dramatic contrast. And now that the Senate leadership is not at stake, we can focus on these two men and what they bring for Georgia to the U.S. Senate. Leo, jump in. 
Yeah, I, I agree with Mary Margaret Oliver. This is a wonderful time for us to really look at the policy differences between the two and what sort of platform Herschel Walker is offering that might give a vision towards you know, where do Republicans go from here? Um, you know, we've gone from Governor Kemp with that 200,000 uh, vote margin between Walker and himself uh, being really the keymaker when it comes to the Senate here. I mean, if Herschel Walker stands a chance, uh, Governor Kemp is going to have to be the guy who went from being booed at the GOP state convention to now being wooed by Walker to help him out and, and to give him a rescue. And I want to acknowledge that Warnock was an early endorser of principledcandidates.org, a candidate principles for trusted elections. Um, Warnock was, and we're still working on getting Walker to sign that, that endorsement of our universal um, principles. Um, okay, Patricia, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, the way in which voters perceived Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock in the exit polls, which this year were conducted uh, for, for the consortium out there by NBC News. Um, here's the headline from The Hill. Two out of three Georgia voters believe GOP Senate candidate Herschel Walker does not have good judgment, according to a new poll. Um Voter feelings, the Hill goes on, uh, come after the former football star faced allegations of paying for multiple women's abortions despite running on an anti-abortion platform. Walker's denied the allegations. And then it goes on. 44% in the poll said they found incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock, quote, too extreme. What's interesting to me about that exit poll is... um, if abortion, in fact, rose in people's minds, according to exit polls nationally, as the second biggest issue on which they voted, there was all this information about Herschel Walker and abortion. He still came uh, within just a few thousand votes of actually uh, winning this thing outright in the same way that Warnock could have. Yes, I think a lot of that of his success or some measure of his success um, comes from the fact that Governor Brian Kemp was at the top of that ticket and brought out a very large, very strong GOP showing and um, helped the entire ticket all the way down. Herschel Walker was the only statewide candidate for Republicans who didn't get out without a runoff. So I think he obviously underperformed the rest of the Republicans. Um, But I think, um, again, without having control of the Senate down to this exact uh, seat, the Republicans who were willing to look past his shortcomings as a candidate in some instances just couldn't get there. We talked to a lot of those. Those are Republican voters in some cases who either left it blank or voted for Raphael Warnock um, because he, they just didn't feel, um, not only were they not wild about the accusations against him, um, it really was their perception that he was not ready or competent to be in the Senate. I think some part of this comes from the fact that he has not lived in Georgia since he was a teenager. People don't really know him as an adult other than the celebrity that he um, always has been. And had he been in the state, had he had relationships here, had he um, been involved in civics, politics, uh, philanthropy, anything, um, that might have helped him combat those character um, uh, sort of the character shortcomings, but he all he has is sort of what he's been accused of, and um, a lot of those details were very credible. And he, you know, it's just sort of how much did you like him before, and how much do you want a Republican Senate? 
Yeah, my uh, I may have missed one person or another, but I don't think so. Herschel Walker was the lowest performing Republican on the statewide ballot. Um, he underperformed Brian Kemp by more than two hundred thousand uh, votes. He's now turning, as as Patricia's pointed out, as we know, to to Brian Kemp for help, and apparently he's going to get some. But uh, it's not a good sign that he did, in fact, underperform the other Republicans by such a large number of votes. Yeah, I mean, it was really a great night for Republicans, by and large, with the exception of that race. Um, and so I think it's going to take a lot of help from the Kemp wing of the, of the party. And really, all that translates to, for me, is sort of the, the validators, the voices in Georgia who can speak directly to a lot of those moderate voters or um, you know, swing voters who had no problem with voting for Kemp and may have voted for Warnock, um, you know, and saying, like, that Walker is a safe choice uh, to make. But that's, again, as we've been saying all morning, kind of a harder sell to make. So their work is certainly cut out for the Walker campaign over the next few weeks. But I will also say that, I mean, this is no, this is not going to be the easiest thing for Warnock to pull off either. We know that Republicans still do tend to turn out in really, really large numbers and runoff elections. And so if this does turn to, come down entirely to turnout, this still might be, I mean, Walker is absolutely still, I think, in the fight for this. And, and um, I haven't heard too much yet from Democrats in the way of how they plan to restructure their ground game to make sure folks do get out. Um, but I have been seeing a really, really heavy push from Republicans. So that's one thing that I will say is that this is, this is you know, obviously not looking great for Republicans in terms of the work they have to do, but I wouldn't just hand this off to Democrats either. I think that's a really important point. And Mary, Margaret, and Leo, I'd love to get both of you involved in this. Look, we know that Stacey Abrams, ever since 2018, was celebrated for her extraordinary turnout machine, the ability to get Democrats to identify uh, new voters and and get them out to vote in Democratic races, even as they engage their base. It didn't happen in this election for uh, Stacey Abrams. They didn't come out uh, the way that she needed them to. And that does raise quite, and we know that the Republicans put together the best ground game they've had in, I would argue, decades in Georgia. How does that play into what we're likely to see in the runoff, the way, the way that May, Maya describes it? The tragedy, the heartbreak of Stacy's loss is very much with me and very much with women, I believe, across Georgia. I think the turnout for uh, Raphael Warnock is going to come a lot from women who are mourning and who are uh, pretty horrified on different levels of Herschel Walker representing Georgia. I think that we, um, the base of the Democratic Party, black women and white women, together uh, have a duty to make sure that Herschel Walker doesn't represent us in the U.S. Senate. So the turnout is going to be important. Obviously, it always is. And uh, Stacey's going to be part of that, whether it's a psychological part of it, whether it's a ground game part of that, whether it's just her leadership team uh, for all Democrats as part of it. I, I have high hopes, high hopes for Reverend Warnock, and I'm excited to have opportunity to vote for him. But part of that is my 
heartbreak over Stacy losing. I just cannot tolerate the image of Herschel Walker, motivational speaker, uh, no interest in policy representing me in the U.S. Senate. Leo? There is so much effort focused on stopping Stacy to the extent that there was even a very powerful independent expenditure named appropriately stopstacy.org. Um, the leaders of that group are going to be now engaged in a turnout for Walker. Um, it's going to be really important. And then there's also a lot of gamesmanship now being made for the future leadership in the Republican Party. I mean, look at great in the, in the voter registration on the right um, that uh, Kelly Leffler was able to do after losing uh, in a very kind of embarrassing way uh, her, her campaign, but now coming back and having impact. And perhaps now she stands at a really amazing place where her organization's effort to, to register and turn out voters as an independent expenditure of Greater Georgia is really at play here. And it may even launch her into a GOP chairmanship race um, if she's able to impact the Walker race. So I think there's some big stakes still to be played here. Maya, um, let's talk for a few minutes about the juxtaposition of what happened to election deniers, to Trump allies across the country, and the sort of mixed results in that respect here in Georgia. We know now that Trump has had a very bad week since Election Day. Um, he lost in almost every major contest that he uh, interjected himself into. And yet, here in Georgia, you had, again, a mix uh, of results in that respect. You have election deniers who actually won re-election. Um, you have now a lieutenant governor who ran as a fake elector, um, uh, uh, Bert Jones, who will become uh, lieutenant governor. <laughs> At the same time, you have a Brian Kemp um, and a Chris Carr uh, and a Brad Raffensperger who refused to go along with Trump's uh, uh, claims of a stolen election. It's fascinating to pose that against what happened nationwide. Yeah, and I mean, we can say that Trump had a really rough election night, but really he's had a pretty rough election cycle. Um, it hasn't just been election deniers who have lost, but there's also the question of candidate quality. I think Georgia Republicans are contending with that right now in, in Herschel Walker's kind of stumbling candidacy. The fact that he was the only one who didn't make it across the finish line has certainly caused a few in the GOP to do some soul searching. I'd also like to see what happens, though, with the state House leader election. I mean, that's, it's obvious that Speaker Ralston was a, a voice of moderation among Republicans in the state House. Um, and we know now the importance of state houses in making policies that can impact entire states and entire countries now. So I'm really, that's another, I think, test of sort of the impact of Trump. But also, I mean, another thing here is that a lot of Republicans in the Trump wing didn't really make it out of their primary, the ones that, that the former president recruited. So you do have this mix on the Republican, um, well, I guess no, long, no longer the ticket, but Republican state leadership is a good mix of moderates and Trump-aligned um, Trump officials. However, however, I don't know what that means yet for policymaking and just how the state is going to be run. Um, I think that we're going to—I do want to get to this election uh, that's going to go on in the Republican uh, uh, caucus uh, later today for speaker. But before we do, uh, Patricia, you wrote what I thought was a really important column on Friday 
um, just about what I'm talking about now. The, the, the issue, the problem that Democrats had getting across the finish line in every statewide uh, race, with the exception of the Walker race. And, and the headline that the, the AJC put on it was, in Stacey Abrams' shadow, the Democratic bench got walloped. The 2022 midterms did not go according to plan for Democrats in Georgia. Not only did Stacey Abrams lose to Governor Brian Kemp by eight points, but every statewide Democrat except Raphael Warnock went down in defeat, in defeat on Tuesday, too. And you point out that includes some of the brightest names in the party, number one on that list being Jen Jordan, who lost by a pretty significant margin for Attorney General uh, B. Wynn, for Secretary of State. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the conclusions you reached in that story, in that column. Yes, I wrote this because um, Georgia Democrats, obviously, they got their very first choice when Stacey Abrams got into the race for governor to run for a rematch against Brian Kemp. And that you could just sort of feel it bring out um, really those top stars, those rising stars for the Democrats, especially B. Wynn and Jen Jordan, left their uh, seats in the legislature to make these runs, um, knowing full well that Abrams would be have her ground game, have immense amount of resources in the state as well. So all of those challenges that they would have faced before really were taken off the table. And because Abrams got so close the last time, the feeling was like, oh, 55,000. Now it's 11,000 plus Biden. And this is a trajectory, not a one-off. And uh, that just did not pan out at all. I was really struck by talking to those down-ballot candidates, how much they said they felt that the Trump factor had been really neutralized here in the state because of Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger. They felt like they were having a very hard time painting Republicans as Um, the group they wanted to call them, painting them as extremists and people not trustworthy. And they kept running into voters to say, but I I don't mind Brad Brad Raffensperger, but Brian Kemp didn't do the thing that he wasn't supposed to do. So they were, it was a lot of Kemp's success that was driving down the Democratic ballot all the way up and down the ticket. They just couldn't ride off of coattails from Abrams because there just weren't any. And uh, Brian Kemp gets a lot of credit for just shearing those right off the bottom he also ran an extremely disciplined, economy-focused campaign, unlike Herschel Walker. I think that's part of why Herschel Walker's in a runoff as well. Um, he, just, he was relentless on the economy. What have I done for you lately? Here's how I made your lives better. Here are the taxes I just cut. I'm about to cut. So they really just felt like Kemp, especially with the Trump piece, made it very, very difficult for them to even get their heads above water. Yeah, what Mary Margaret, of- weigh in. One of the benefits of being in politics is to experience uh, working with real talent, to see talent emerge and to be excited about that talent, particularly in a changing Georgia. Stacey Abrams, B. Wynn, and Jen Jordan represented stars. They were uniquely talented people, young women, young women who had very successful public policy commitments commitments and careers. This is the beginning of exciting careers. And the excitement for them uh, was very, very palpable. And to see the three of them, of course, led by Stacey, not succeed in this um, tough, tough world of politics is, 
is very, very disheartening. It's not the first time we have been disheartened. Uh, Michelle Nunn, Kathy Cox, Barbara Christmas, all of those are outstanding women Democratic candidates who a, a statewide woman Democrat has never won an election in Georgia. Uh, now, that I'm going to put the exception of Kathy Cox, who won her second term for secretary of state after she was appointed, uh, running against a 20-something-year-old guy who had $80,000. I'm kind of putting her in a different category. So for Stacey, Jen, and B, such unique faces of Georgia in our modern times, to not do well is a big blow. And it causes us to step back and look at this again and whatever the opportunities are for Democrats, particularly for our young stars, we've got to refocus, work again, and move forward. First task being electing Raphael Warnock to the U.S. Senate. Um, my, I've got to get to a break, but before I do, uh, it, 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 uh, picking uh, up after, uh, from where Mary and Margaret left off, um, the, the Democratic statewide ticket, except for Charlie Bailey, was a ticket of women. The Republican ticket, uh, with the exception of John uh, King, who's Hispanic origin, uh, was a bunch of white men. Uh, this was a setback, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, mm-hmm. uh, for women in the state of Georgia. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think one question always is this sense uh, that women candidates have to contend with more of, um, you know, whether or not they're really prepared for office, whether they'll really represent the interests of all of their constituents. And I think it's an assumption that's rooted in a lot of a lot of sexism. But it's certainly something that, that a lot of women candidates have had to answer to repeatedly. I wonder how this might impact um, future elections. But one thing that I heard from a lot of Democrats is that the ticket that they put forward was what actually looked and sounded like Georgia. And that's very true. All right, let's do this. Let's get to the first break of Political Rewind. We'll come back with a lot more on today's show. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Leo Smith, Mary Margaret Oliver, Maya King, and Patricia Murphy join me on today's Political Rewind. Here's my quick public service announcement. Janice and I spent the weekend in New York City where we went up to see Kenny Leon, the great Kenny Leon, two Broadway shows running right now. One of them is a show called Top Dog, Underdog, which won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2000 for the brilliant uh, African-American playwright Susan Laurie Parks. And the reason I mention it to you all now is we talked a lot about racism and Black Lives Matter on this show in a political context. But, you know, what I realized this weekend is sometimes it is art that illuminates for us the issues that we face as a country. And Top Dog Underdog does that brilliantly. If you have a chance to get to New York, I suggest you go see that show. Uh, it, is, it is hilarious. It's tragic. It's, it's an extraordinary show. And it comes from our own Georgia director, uh, Kenny Lee Antonio award-winning Director Kenny Leon, and while you're there, go see his other Broadway show, Ohio State Murders, which stars Audra McDonald and also illuminates how race, the toxicity of race, 
affects lives in this country. Okay, enough of that, but I'm so excited about those plays. I couldn't help but want to share with you how I felt about them. Um, all right, let's move on. Patricia Murphy, you're sitting there waiting to get for the 10 o'clock start of the Republicans getting together to elect a new uh, a speaker first and foremost, but other leadership positions as well. And if, if I'm correct, the real uh, uh, top candidates for the uh, David Ralston position are John Burns, majority leader, and Barry Fleming. They have different approaches to uh, their conservatism, and uh, they could have the, the winner of that race could have an enormous impact on the direction that Republicans who will be in the majority take in the House. Start us off on that. And of course, I want to hear from Mary Margaret, first of all, about what losing David Ralston as speaker means. But Patricia? Yes. So John Burns, I think, is seen as the um, consensus pick of people who would have most certainly voted for David Ralston had he um, been able to remain on as speaker. He's seen as being um, a uh, more of a consensus builder, um, very even demeanor, um, very well respected. Uh, Barry Fleming is somebody who is far more conservative. Um, He authored or at least certainly championed uh, SB 202 on the House side as a more conservative version of the election bill that ended up coming out of the General Assembly. Um, And I think I'd love to hear Mary Margaret's thoughts on this as well. But it it, it certainly, I think, is going to really determine and speak to um, the direction of the Republican Party here in the state, as well as the direction of the state house, because the state house under Speaker Ralston has been so uh, steady, compared, especially compared to the state Senate, which has had its own internal um, power struggles and moments of retribution and revenge, and it was just sort of a soap opera. And under Speaker Ralston, the House was much more, um, no, no less conservative, but he certainly would, uh, in some instances, moderate bills. He also picked um, Democrats to lead committees like um, Mary Margaret Oliver, um, when he really felt that their expertise was necessary and important. And it was also important to have a Democratic voice on a bill or on a process to really give it that breadth um, in order to give it get it as much support as possible. So I think that this is a major, major choice for Republicans, not just about the chamber, um, but also about the party and what sort of even just uh, uh, the tone of the entire Capitol will be going forward. Mary Margaret? Prior to David having to, the speaker having to step aside from running for speaker, there was a universal understanding that David Ralston would be the adult in the room, the adult in the Capitol. And the the transition of leadership in Senate is very problematical. I've served, of course, both in the House and the Senate, so I can talk about it. Um, They are a very different body over there, and David Ralston has led the House in such a respectful, no drama way. Uh, of course, he's been there a long time, the longest serving speaker in the United States at this time. So he has developed a reputation and a profile of respect, respect to Democrats, respect to different parts of the states, a, a profile of respect. His control has been very, very strong, and his control on issues, the worst, kind of most problematical, most painful issues. Uh, when the House passed some of a couple of uh, Governor Kemp's, uh, you know, more painful, far-right, 
we don't like trans children kind of issues, that was uh, an aberration for the House. We have avoided those kind of pointing the finger at trans children. I'll just use that as a as an example. We've avoided those issues under David Ralston's leadership. And he has been, uh, particularly in the last year, on the mental health project that his power made happen. Um, he's articulated strategically that this is a bipartisan bill, as he had with other measures in the House. For him to articulate and carry through that this is a bipartisan activity was meaningful to Democrats. He was honest with Democrats. He was open to Democrats. And the appointment of, of me as MARTOC chair was, was the first time it's ever happened in the House in my long political career that a Democrat was appointed to a, a, a committee of the House. So he has carried through with the voice of bipartisanship. The quality of his leadership is simply universally accepted and and respected. So it's David um, is unique. John Burns is part of his team, uh, and the other parts of his major part of his team have stepped forward to support uh, uh, John Burns, who's a Southeast Georgia respected legislator, a very long tenure. I think that uh, Speaker Burns, if that's what happens in January, it doesn't happen totally today. The Republicans make their nomination today. Uh, will be um, a good uh, representative of the strengths of David Ralston, but won't have the long-term depth of substantive leadership and respected leadership on some difficult issues. It's very sad that we're losing uh, Speaker Ralston, losing him in the leadership position. I'm very confident, uh, prayerfully confident that he will be back with us as a member of the House and will be able to be of service to us as he continues a very long public service career. Yeah, we know that uh, David Ralston is facing health challenges right now, which are preventing him from running for re-election to that uh, post. Um, Leo, Ralston couldn't hold the line on everything. Um, he didn't really want the heartbeat law, uh, yeah. but he was pushed um, from constituents out there, right-wing conservative uh, voters, uh, certainly by cons- you know the more conservative members of the body. Uh, it only won by one vote, but but there are times he did uh, have to uh, bend to uh, the wishes of uh, the the con- most conservative members. Um, we're now going to see the possibility. Of a, we're going to have a new speaker. We're going to have Burt Jones as lieutenant governor. Even Kemp himself has said said two different things in two debates. First debate he was in, he was asked if he would want even tougher an even tougher abortion law. He said, "I'm happy with where we are." Second time he was asked in the WSB debate, he said, "Well, I don't want it, but um, I have to listen to my members and what uh, they want." Opening the door. Um, and there are other really conservative measures that that House and, and Senate could take up, and we may not have uh, that more moderate David Ralston there. We won't have that moderate David Ralston there. No, I mean, we're, look, we're, Speaker Ralston is an aspirational leader. We will miss him. He will hopefully be having that impact continually. Um, we are a representative Republican, so we do have to yield to being representatives of the people. And, you know, I just want to point out for Republicans and this, this leadership elect, 
um, that Speaker Rawson in 2013 and 14 supported our minority voter engagement project with the Georgia Republican Party that led to incredible performance amongst all kinds of people across Georgia by Governor Dill and Purdue. Um, they outperformed with minorities than Kemp did in this particular election. The Speaker Rawson was the reason why I was invited to come down to Jekyll Island and present to the caucus. He supported conservative values, but conservative values that could reach across difference. Maya? Well, you know, I look at this sort of in a broad strokes um, approach, particularly covering the South. I know that, oh, excuse me, I know that Georgia um, obviously is looked at as very politically significant in the Deep South right now. And so losing this voice of moderation in the state house, I think other states will take notice um, of the legislation that has passed over the next few months and years, possibly. And so, you know, Ralston's departure is a really big deal, not just for Georgians, but I really believe for politics across the Deep South and what the Georgia State House is able to accomplish over these next few cycles is really could very well have implications for the direction that other neighboring states might take. All right. um, Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way and we'll come back with more on political rewind. I'd love to have the panel uh, look with me at the national uh, political picture in the aftermath of the midterms. We'll do that when we return. Patricia Murphy, control of the U.S. House, is really still up for grabs, which is startling considering that for months we've been talking about some version of a red wave. Uh, it, it started as a, a, a smaller uh, kind of uh, a belief that Republicans were going to take control. It built and built uh, until the last couple of weeks. We had Republican leaders uh, predicting major victories in the House and Senate. None of it happened. I mean— uh, uh, Democrats will maintain control of the House. And if Warnock wins, and we didn't even talk about this, that 51st Democrat is significant in many ways. Why don't you quickly tell people why to have 51 is more important than a 50-50 split with a vice president breaking the tie? Uh, well, first of all, it would save Kamala Harris a trip over to the Capitol uh, to break ties. Um, obviously, it would also drain a little power away from uh, senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, but honestly, not a lot. You really need about a three to four vote cushion on either side of the Senate to really comfortably push what you would call kind of uh, progressive policies or super conservative policies. There are there are always this five, six, seven senators in the middle who make it really difficult. But on uh, procedural um, items, uh, particularly for uh, President Biden's nominees, his uh, judicial nominees, ambassadorial nominees, um, continuing to populate the agencies in the way that he sees fit, um, all of that it, it gets a huge boost by the fact that Democrats have retained control of the Senate. And, and and you wouldn't have to have a power sharing agreement. Uh, Democrats would be able to appoint all the committee chair. They would have uh, uh, majorities in the in all the committees. They'd commit all. The, uh, they would have all the committee chairs. Uh, and 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 there are ways in which it is of some significance. Um, all right. That said, another really quick question here: Leo Smith, the Republican on our panel, if the House is won by Republicans by a very very narrow margin. I'd like to speculate on a question I'm interested in. 
What hap- what what power does that give a Marjorie Taylor Greene among other far right activists who have been pushing and pushing and pushing to move their entire conference as far to the right as possible? Well, I think that, uh, in fact, during this general election, Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't really have much of an impact. And I'm actually happy, very happy as a Republican conservative who wants us to be about our values to see. So with this really tight margin, and even uh, Kevin McCarthy, if he's to run for leader again, he's going to actually need some support across all sides. And I think, therefore, he's going to have to moderate his own uh, sort of rhetoric as he, he seeks leadership. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is becoming less and less of a player in Republican politics, I hope. And I, and I think that what we saw in her role in the general, which was very little impact, uh, will continue to have a role, unless, of course, she decides to be a representative of the people in the spirit of Georgia and the fairness and peacemaking in our republic. Maya, I respect Leo Smith. But I think he just gave us the rosiest possible moderate Republican take on Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was at she was at the Trump rallies across the country. Kevin McCarthy has has bowed to her on many occasions. It strikes me that if he becomes speaker or whoever becomes speaker, as Leo pointed out, the majority, the margin is going to be so small, they're going to, he or whatever, whatever the speaker's name is, going to have to be listening to a Marjorie Taylor Greene. I agree. And I mean, there's, there's also reporting to suggest that, you know, a lot of folks in her circles have actually started to galvanize uh, Leader McCarthy to encourage him to give uh, Representative Taylor Green a little bit more of a role, um, maybe perhaps uh, a prominent position on one of the committees. And I know, Leo, that maybe not may not be necessarily music to your ears, <laughs> but with these really thin margins, I mean, I think what I think, the first thought that comes to mind when I hear about these thin margins is the Freedom Caucus, the far-right Freedom Caucus, is going to try to run the show on the Hill, and they will have a lot more, even as Republicans have a lot less space in terms of the size of their entire caucus, that kind of works in the Freedom Caucus's favor. They have more room to try to flex their muscles on the Hill. And, I, and knowing the, the brand of politics that they practice, they absolutely will. And the, the other thing that Taylor Greene might have, while she doesn't necessarily have, um, you know, the favor of the Republican establishment and may not necessarily have influence in some circles in Georgia, she absolutely does have an army of grassroots Republicans behind her in northern Georgia in particular, and really across the country. There's no secret why she spends time in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania and has kind of done this. It's because she's building her own army of influence of people. I'm sorry, Leo. I hate to just throw cold water on your theory, um, but I really don't think I, I think that I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk are just getting started. Yeah. All right. Um, Mary Margaret, I want to read you something that I thought about as we watched the uh, election deniers, the Trump allies fail in election after election around the country. We have been living under the spell of Donald Trump's control over the Republican Party, and it may very well continue. And we'll certainly be talking about that on the show. But here's what it made me think about. It made me think of the fact that um, uh, in uh, 1970, blah, I don't remember the exact year, um, a woman named Jane Byrne became mayor of Chicago, fighting the daily machine, which had controlled the city for decades and which was invulnerable. 
But on the day that Jane Byrne, the reform candidate, won, the great Chicago newspaper columnist Mike Royko, a legend, wrote this. It was the most stunning upset in the long, wild history of Chicago politics. And this column is about the single most important person involved in that incredible upset. And no, it isn't about Jane Byrne. This column is about you. That's right, you there on the L train or bus or in your kitchen reading this over morning coffee, you at your punch press or in your firehouse or hospital cafeteria, you behind the counter in the department store or jockeying the cab or unloading that truck, you did it, you wild and crazy Chicagoans, oh, you finally did it. I'm still having trouble believing it, but you slammed your hand down on the table or bar or to your forehead and said, Enough is enough. And I wonder if there is something of that in what happened to Trump and his candidates across the country, or am I being overly optimistic? Enough is enough is certainly um, a rallying cry that should be part of the Republican leadership. I speak as somebody who thought uh, Trump's campaign should have ended on the day he mocked the disability of a New York Times reporter. Uh, the fact that his campaign extended beyond that is still a shock to me. The American people do not allow their relatives, even their crazy uncle at the Thanksgiving table, to mock the disability of their neighbors. And yet we have tolerated this for years. If I were Mitch McConnell, what strategy would I oppose on my Republicans to step away from Donald Trump? American people are ready, in my view, to step away, and yet I'm suspicious that they still want to use his attention-getting ridiculousness for their benefit. Patricia, what did you think about what your fellow columnist wrote and how it applies to this midterm election? Well, I wish I'd written it, obviously. He's so, he's so incredible. <laughs> One of the best ever. Um, but I think, you know, we quoted uh, somebody last week about uh, the state House Republican challenge that they were going to have here in, the, here in the state. I'll say it about D.C. as well. It's going to be like crabs in a bucket to try and control yeah. <laughs> a very tiny, tiny majority with somebody like Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, in that majority, she will most likely get a seat on the House Oversight Committee. That will be the committee that starts to investigate Hunter Biden and any number of uh, other Biden uh, sort of problems out there. She said she plans to bring impeachment against Biden again. So they've got they've got their hands full with Marjorie Taylor Greene after an election that rewarded moderation. Um, Leo, you got about 20 seconds. You certainly hope that uh, this is, and we're gonna, he's going to announce again tomorrow night, but you hope that, that Trump is now on the way down, yes? Well, it's a, I mean, George, it's a cold day in Georgia, but hope springs eternal. <laughs> you know, and hopefully- okay. <laughs> Maya, final word. Do, do you think that what you're seeing is uh, a party that's about to begin again, going in a new direction? You've got about 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. I, I think that... You know, I think that what we're seeing is both parties which are really doing their best to cow actually to what voters want. And the Republican realignment, if it does take place, will have to yield to a little bit more moderation, particularly on issues like abortion and public health. We'll see if that actually happens, though. Yeah, and we're going to keep talking about that in the days ahead. Patricia Murphy, you run inside and watch that vote 
uh, in the Georgia House. Leo Smith, thank you so much. Uh, Maya King, always a pleasure. And Mary Margaret Oliver, congratulations again on your victory. And thank you so much for being back on Political Rewind. We are totally out of time. Back again with a live show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Go get your flu shot, if not a COVID booster. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>